Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Understanding Ferguson. So, Richard, over our holiday break, we got news of the decision from the grand jury in Ferguson, Missouri, not to bring charges against the officer who was responsible for the shooting death of Michael Brown, which has been this major flashpoint in American race relations for the past several months. So why don't you and I start here on the on the legal side and and give the audience a sense of, of what kind of latitude the law allows for a police officer to use deadly force in the course of an encounter like this one? Well, the general rules on this are actually pretty clear. Uh, even in stop-and-frisk cases where there is no evidence sign of danger, uh, the police are allowed to do exactly what that says, frisk them, because you're afraid that a question will be responded to with a bullet. In this particular case where there's actual danger going on, all of the uh, inhibitions against public force tend to be lowered. And what happens is the policeman in good faith is pretty much allowed to do anything if it turns out that his life is in danger. If it is not in danger and you have somebody who's fleeing, then there are serious constraints with respect to excessive force, uh, which can be enforced, strangely enough, by private rights of action, even under the Fourth Amendment or under state law. But in this particular case, what happens is the situation was one where it was quite clear at some point prior to the time in which he was shot. Brown had actually reached into the car and was trying to wrest the gun away from the officer involved, Darren Wilson. Once you do that, this is no longer a question of can you take precautions against the actual use of force. It turns out the or the potential use of force. It's a case of actual use of force. And by and large, the general legal rule is that all of the doubts resolved in favor of the officer. So unless you can show that there's a conscious effort to go beyond the limits and clear use of excessive force, the ambiguities will be resolved in his favor. So to put it in the simplest fashion, if this had been a case in which there had been a white police officer stopping a white perpetrator of some kind or another, uh, this case would not get a second piece of attention. There was a fair bit of criticism in the media of the the prosecutor in this case, Robert McCulloch, because he he chose to simply lay out the evidence and let the grand jury decide what to do rather than aggressively advocating for a prosecution. Are, are critics right to be worked up over that approach? It's a very difficult question, and you know I've gotten comments by people in response to the column that I wrote, taking both positions. This is the correct legal analysis, I think, which is that the prosecutor is under no circumstances bound to bring any case before a grand jury if he or she thinks that the case is not meritorious for prosecution. My own guess is that the prosecutor in this particular case, when he looked at the situation, he decided he did not think that the prosecution uh, was warranted. So what he should have done if he was just simply treating another case was to back off from the situation and say, okay, I don't think this case should be done. I'm not going to bring it. But, you know, McCulloch is facing this serious problem. He decides not to bring this case before a grand jury. The political ramifications are going to be enormous. So what he then says is I could go there and aggressively prosecute, but I don't believe he thinks that this is a case for prosecution. Somebody can disagree with this judgment. I don't think they could challenge his bona fides. So for him to go in front of a course and to prosecute a case with vehemence that he does not believe is appropriate is to him a very uncomfortable position. 
position because he's having to say things to a grand jury that he doesn't believe to be true. But he can't back out of it because of the political pressures. So what he says is, I'm just going to lay it out in front of you and you can do more or less what you want. Then, of course, when he starts asking the question, his own bias on this thing starts to seep through. And so he is, as my colleague Rachel Barco reported when she read the transcript, the softball questions seemed to go to those witnesses that were supportive of Wilson and the tougher questions tended to go to the critics, which, of course, is consistent with his basic mindset. Well, once you start seeing that, somebody who thinks that he should have been aggressive to begin with and thought that those doubts were just completely crazy is going to go up in smoke and say, you know, you really have to prosecute this thing and you can't take this position. It's a form of racism. But if you go back to that first stage, if he dropped the thing, it would just end. Then it would say, well, what happens next? The feds could decide to bring a prosecution. But they only have limited jurisdiction. They have to show not only that it's an excessive use of force when actually subject to attack, but they have to show that it is to some extent racially motivated. And given that this started out of a chance encounter when our friend Wilson was off doing something else, it's going to be extremely difficult to do this. Just the way when they went after Zimmerman uh, and they actually brought the criminal prosecution, you'll note that that case was decided close to a year ago and there's been no federal follow-up for a civil rights violation. The evidence isn't there. The occasional newspaper story on this said that the feds haven't found anything that they think would warrant prosecution. So that what you really know is that if it turns out that this guy McCullough decides he's not going to bring this thing, then in effect it's just going to die. It's not going to happen. Well, that means that you could start getting the private lawsuit by the family and they can sue, I would assume, both the officer and the uh, police department. But again, the odds in a private suit are very much against them. And even though there's no privilege against self-incrimination, putting Wilson on the stand is not a winning strategy if he's going to stick to the story that he otherwise told. And you're going to find it very difficult to break him. So my guess is that the Brown family in the end will decide they don't want to sue just the way Trayvon Martin's family in the end decided that they did not want to sue. Look, the reason you take self-incrimination as a privilege, and my guess is that Wilson probably has waived it by virtue of talking before the grand jury, is because you think that the government hasn't got the first base. You start to talk and God knows what will happen. But if it turns out you have to speak, then you're going to talk. So in both cases, it's perfectly rational not to talk when you think the prosecution is going badly um, in one of these cases. And it's absolutely imperative that you talk in the civil case, so you're going to give it your best shot. Neither of these things work particularly well, so that the private plaintiffs, on average, are going to back off of these cases. The evidence is very inconsistent on all of it, and it seems to me that given the fact that the only thing that is clear is that Brown did engage in some abusive language to begin with and some aggressive behavior when Wilson was still in the car. It's a very tough case to win. How should we think about Officer Wilson's role in this whole scenario? I mean, is there um, is the fact that the grand jury didn't bring the indictment? Do you say you know he was pretty much blameless in this situation, or are there still things that are sort of outstanding questions, even if they don't merit an indictment? Well, I think the last point is always true and it always should be true. Look, one of the serious problems that we have in the United States is that there's much conduct which the police engage in, which is not criminal by any stretch of the imagination, but which is not ideal either. And what you're always trying to do is to figure out ways in this particular gray area where you could reduce the amount of unfortunate confrontations, some of which result in death. One of the things that people have suggested and which I heartily 
uh, basically support, is that every police officer in the United States should have one of those Google goggles or some such thing in which when you start to engage in a confrontation, um, there's a continuous stream of tape and then somebody sees it and it then gets recorded from start to stop so that you see the whole thing. There are now, I think, devices which allow you to take any weapon and when you fire the weapon, you take a picture at the same time of what it is that you're shooting at. Uh, because if you get all of that kind of information, the uncertainty, which has fed so much of the controversy in this case, will largely disappear. Well, who is it going to benefit? Well, the cynics will start to say, generally speaking, it will benefit those people who have been attacked and will catch the police out. This technique has been adopted in a number of fairly major cities today, and the evidence suggests the opposite. It suggests that 90-odd percent of the time, the police are within the normal scope of their powers, and it's the citizen who's been abusive. And if you think about it, these guys are trained. These guys are under supervision. There's even more supervision when you put this tape on it. It becomes extremely costly for somebody who could lose his job, forfeit his pension rights or whatever it is by acting like a darn fool out there, and the other fellow, of course, has no institutional check upon him. So you would expect, particularly with the films, that the police would be within limits and would behave properly. Once this becomes known, what's going to happen is all of a sudden suspects will start to behave properly as well because they will now know that they're under camera. They know that the police are going to be very wary about doing something that will jeopardize their career. They're going to get themselves into big trouble. And so the whole thing will start to calm itself down. And there's a kind of an ultimate truth here, which is oftentimes uh, the way you solve problems is through technology. You get direct witnesses. You have precise accounting of some form or another so that you don't get the he said versus the she said type situation, which led to the impasse in this case. So that's one kind of thing you'd want to do. A second thing you might want to do is to change the kind of armory that these guys carry with them. This is not an issue in the Wilson case because he was off on some mission taking somebody, I think it was to a funeral home, and he just had his service revolver. But when you have police out there on riot duty and they put these elaborate equipment on them, a lot of this is ex-military stuff, and some of it is simply of too high wattage for what you need. And so you really want to think about that. In terms of domestic disputes, I think it's been pretty conclusively shown that you don't want to send two men into any domestic dispute because it's going to provoke violence on the other side. Better to use male-female teams to handle these situations uh, and to make sure that you can control the guy on the one hand and not frighten to death the female partner on the other. So there are lots of things that ought to be done. And look, the social cost of just having this brown dispute get up to the level that it's been, you know, including burning churches that were owned by the pastors inside the Ferguson neighborhood, are so high that these precautions, which should be systematically and aggressively attacked, are in fact, I think, absolutely, completely imperative under these circumstances. This is not doing anything fancy. This is taking the technology that we have, figuring out what goes wrong in every incident that turns sour, and then taking steps to deal with it. Even the New York Times is perfectly correct when it says, if you end up shooting somebody in a stairwell, you better start thinking about the rules which say that when the police feel in danger, they should always be free to use their service weapons. Maybe you got to start to reconsider some of that stuff as well. So I don't wish to be a defender of the status quo. I just simply want to say that I thought the Ferguson grand jury, relatively insulated from political pressures, faced with evidence which may not have been perfectly or artfully presented, did in fact the right thing. Final question, Richard. You note in your piece at Defining Ideas that even in the wake of the grand jury's decision, there are still people out there 
powerful people, doggedly trying to make this case into a metaphor. You've got the Justice Department, as you mentioned, is still investigating the case. You've got uh, Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times calling for truth and reconciliation commissions on the order of what they had in South Africa after apartheid. Um, is there a danger, regardless really of which way this case had played out, of politicians and the media trying to freight stories like this with too much metaphorical significance? Well, metaphorical is not the word that I would use. I would say institutional. That is, there may well be a breakdown in how police forces are organized in Ferguson or elsewhere. But if there is, it's got to be systematic. And systematic flaws don't become manifest by virtue of a chance encounter on on an empty street on an afternoon in August. That's just not the way they happen. And for Christoph, who I think has been highly irresponsible in the way in which he's written his various stories about how whites don't get it, because I'm one of the whites who frankly think he doesn't get it at all. To start talking about truth and reconciliation means you're comparing a chance event that happened in Ferguson, Missouri with one of the most evil comprehensive systems of racial segregation that the world has ever seen. That shows a kind of a moral blindness in its own right because what it does is it misses the essential feature, which is when you're talking about American problems with respect to segregation and with the abuse of force, there is nobody on any side of the Ferguson debate who really thinks that uh, police conduct, which is racially motivated, designed to terrorize some portion of the citizenry, is a good thing. If you go back to apartheid, essentially racial terrorism was an essential part of that program, which started in 1948 at the very latest when Stridham won in office and lasted at least until 1994, which is a run of 46 years. And the comparison is just bizarre. Um, to think of that. So what you really want to do is to say, Lex, we've got some problems, but you don't need a national convention to solve them. What you need, in effect, is actions in which police department after police department and mayor after mayor looks at what's going on there and then tries to figure out what they can do to make sure that the next Ferguson doesn't happen in their community. Look, my view about this is that the system worked. That is, the grand jury is relatively isolated from pressure. It may not have been the right performance by the prosecutor in that case. We could argue that till the time comes over. But if you look at the evidence in this case and try to compare it to Emmett Till or to Medgar Evers, which were cold-blooded murders and so forth, what's happened is people have lost sight of what's going on. And this is a very regrettable feature about American racial relations today. And you take something like a colorblind rule on schools and it, or universities in a case like Schwedy, and people are starting to say it's the end of the universe. It's a return to Jim Crow. It's not that. It may be wrong, may be right, but it's not that. Uh, getting rid of Section 5 preclearance hearings in the voting area may be right or may be wrong, but it's not a return to the segregated South. What we have to do is to understand that we've made huge progress in this country on these things and that people of goodwill can get together and make it even further. But you'll not be able to get that progress if every time there is a group of individuals out there who call themselves self-appointed and self-righteous activists who simply tell the rest of us that we don't get it. I mean, the this service that Nick Kristoff has done with those five columns, he has just alienated thousands upon thousands of people who read it because what he's saying is anybody who disagrees with me is in bad faith. And he can't even get his facts right, for example, on the NBA. But that's another story. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.